The Bob Murphy Show, episode 88. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. If the timing is correct on this, this should be dropping on or near Christmas Day 2019. So I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. And I wanted to do something religious for the holiday. And so I decided to do a topic that several of you have been asking me since the podcast started that I should address. Namely, uh, Ludwig von Mises' Inhuman Action has some remarks where he says, you know, once you understand praxeology, you'll see that it's incompatible with the biblical notion of an omniscient, omnipotent God. And so that's what I'm going to ultimately tackle in this episode. And that's the reason for the cheeky name of the episode. But before I go into that, let me just step back more broadly and talk about the way I see how God operates vis-a-vis our world and our personalities and so forth. And I, the, the long and short of it is God is an author. He's the author. And so a lot of these apparent paradoxes melt away when you think of a human author with respect to his or her creations. So I'm going to go back and forth between Star Wars and Harry Potter, partly because I realize in my audience, some of you may be Star Wars fans and never read Harry Potter or younger people might be vice versa, but also because the specific applications I want to use, they're just perfect for the thing I have in mind. So regarding Star Wars, you know, here in here, <laughs> I urge you if you're an atheist libertarian and you're really on guard because you realize, oh, where's Murphy going to try to take this? I'm going to get all fired up and ready in my defensive posture to make sure he doesn't try to slip one by me. I mean, you can do that if you want. But what I'm going to say now for the next 10 to 15 minutes or so is really non-controversial. This is common sense stuff. And if it were in any other context, you would be, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get, you. I get what you're saying, Bob. So, you know, again, feel free to be on your guard and really resist what I want to say here, but this is actually pretty straightforward stuff if you're having a regular conversation with it. The worst thing is they would say, where are you going with this? Why are you wasting my time with these silly questions? But in any event, okay, in Star Wars, let's say we're wondering whether someone who's originally working for the Empire, you know, serving Palpatine, Emperor Palpatine, whether that person's loyal or not. Okay, so remember in the first Star Wars movie, Episode, what is that, four? What is it, New Hope? Okay, so I, I mean, I don't mean episode one, not the one with Liam Neeson as Qui-Gon. I'm talking about the original Star Wars movie. When Luke first teams up with uh, Ben Kenobi and they're in the flying speeder there going into town and the stormtroopers are looking for him. And there's that famous scene where, you know, the stormtrooper comes up and looks and... Obi-Wan uses the force, you know, he waves his hand and he says, these are not the droids you're looking for. And the guy, 
these are not the droids we're looking for. They just keep moving on. All right. So did that stormtrooper just commit treason in the eyes of the empire? Did he knowingly shirk his duty? Well, well, no, right? It's not that Ben Kenobi slipped them some Imperial credits and said, hey, uh, do a brother a favor and look the other way here. No, he used the force to deceive the guy or to take control of his mind or power of suggestion. It's never really spelled exactly how that works. But clearly there, the stormtrooper did not choose to disobey his orders to locate those droids. He was misled or whatever, but he did not choose to do that. There was an external force, no pun intended, that took control of his will at that point. Okay. Different example in episode four to six, Return of the Jedi, near the end of that. I hope I'm not giving spoilers. Palpatine, the Emperor, is zapping Luke with this lightning out of his hands. And uh, he seems to be enjoying himself. This isn't purely a pragmatic thing. And what happens? Vader, you know, sitting there looking back and forth, realizing that's his son sitting there nagging. And I think Luke's even, you know, saying, Father, help me, something like that. And what does Vader do? He finally goes and picks Palpatine up and throws him over the edge. So was that an act of treason against the Empire in the eyes of Palpatine? Yes. Right? And so what's the difference, right? B both cases, the employee in the Empire didn't do what the orders were. What's the difference? Well, because the first, the stormtrooper who said these aren't the droids we're looking for, he had his mind taken over by the force, right? He really didn't choose to do that. Whereas Vader did choose to throw Palpatine over the edge. That was his own conscious choice. It's not that Luke used the force to take control of Anakin Skywalker at that moment and, and control his arms and have him against his will or outside his will throw Palpatine over the edge. All right. Another element or example, the fact that Anakin Skywalker starts out as a good guy and then turns to the dark side. Did he do that of his own free will? Yes, he did. However, was it purely just on his own? He, he just, you know, one day he's this cute little kid. Then he starts getting older and he just decides, you know what? Forget trying to help people. I'm just going to go out and be ruthless and look out for numero uno. And, you know, I used to think slaughtering babies was bad, but now I realize it's fine. No, that, that's not what happened, right? And here you would need episodes one through three to have the full story. It's that Palpatine systematically corrupted him through a combination of flattery, pumping up jealousy, envy, and uh, fear, above all, and outright lying, right? That's the, the coup de grace at the end in episode three. That's the thing that really ultimately seals the deal is he just flat out lies to him and says, oh, yeah, your fiance, did they get married? Yeah, they got married. Died because you killed her in a fit of rage, which isn't what happened. And that's, you know, which makes him just flip out. Okay, so that's necessary to understand how could it be that Anakin went from the cute little kid into Darth Vader, Palpatine's systematic lies and appeal to his baser emotions and whatnot for years. That's part of the story. You need to know that. Okay, so you see, again, all the different cases here I'm laying out in terms of people doing things that are against what they would have thought their duty was and what's the explanation and what's their 
culpability, if you will. Okay? All right. Now I point out, well, wait a minute. George Lucas actually, in a sense, did all that. And if with episodes one through three, I don't know how much Lucas was involved with the screenplay and all that stuff, but you get my point. If it's not George Lucas, the, the team of the collaborators who were doing the plot. All right, there's a sense in which, well, no, actually, they're the ones responsible. So you can see how there's different layers. What do we mean? You know, when you say, did Vader throw Palpatine over the edge of his own free will? There's a certain sense in which, yes, he did. Where that's not true of the stormtrooper in episode four, who said, these are not the droids we're looking for. You say, did that stormtrooper overlook the droids of his own free will? And you say, no, he didn't. Because Ben was using them, the force on him, doing a Jedi mind trick. Okay, but yet there's also a sense in which no character in Star Wars is doing anything on his or her own because it was all predetermined by the screenwriter, whether it's George Lucas or somebody else. All right. And I submit it's not a it's still a meaningful question or still a meaningful distinction between the stormtrooper in episode four or in Anakin turning evil or turning to the dark side, let's say, because of the systematic corrupting influence of Palpatine in his life, feeding him lies and flattery and whatever over the years, that it's, it's a very important distinction to look at those two cases, even though there's also a sense in which nobody had free will in the sense that their actions and very thoughts were all predetermined. All right, so the mere fact that we're acknowledging or recognizing hey, you know, there actually were, was a higher life form that created this entire story and created these characters de novo and invented this entire universe in his mind. Nonetheless, there is a very real sense in which the stormtrooper cannot be held responsible for what he did when he let the droids go by, whereas Anakin is morally culpable for what he did. And also, if you know, we're drawing obvious references here, does anybody get mad and think that it's unfair that just because Anakin changed on his deathbed, as it were, you know, finally turns back, throws Palpatine over, and then, you know, is dying there because he, you know, took his mask off or whatever, or the the Emperor's electricity hit him. It's, it's not clear to me exactly why is Vader dying at the end of episode six, but it's one of those two things or combination. Um, and he, you know, he says to Luke, tell your sister you were right. And what he means is that, yeah, there was still good in me and you pulled it back out, Luke. Good job. And then, you know, after that, then they're back on, what is that, the Endor moon and they have the bonfire and whatever. Then you see Anakin is standing with Yoda and Ben and, you know, like the, the force ghosts that you see the, the people that are still, their spirits are still with us, even though their bodies are gone. Right. Is, does anybody get outraged by that? It's what deathbed confession and conversion. You can't do that. He didn't go through the sacraments, right? Who always you get to just kill a bunch of people in the rebellion for years and all of a sudden just because you killed the emperor, that means you're good? I mean, maybe some of you did think that. That wasn't my emotional reaction. I was like, oh, Luke did it. He turned him back. Great. He redeemed himself. Okay, so <laughs> you can use that as a, as a theological springboard if you want. All right, but for the purposes of what I'm talking about in this episode, you see how those things all play into each other and that the star Wars story would not make any sense if we said, well, no one's really got free will because 
there was this creator that invented the characters. That No, it's a perfectly sensible question to say in the Star Wars world, in that universe, with its laws, you know, governing how things work and the, you know, to the extent that there is such a thing as free will and that's not a, a meaningless concept, that it's very significant and very morally important to distinguish what happened with the stormtrooper. By the way, it's a bit weird because I'm making the stormtrooper do something that's actually good. But so you can flip it the other way and say, should the stormtrooper be credited for doing the right thing there? No, because he didn't choose to. It's not that he let them go because he realized, you know, these guys are building a Death Star and that's not right. I'm going to look the other way. That's not what happened. He looked the other way because he had no choice. Whereas Vader finally doing the right thing at the end of his life, that is morally praiseworthy, right? So the fact that there's a George Lucas that we know is ultimately responsible for all that does not negate the fact that Luke is the good guy and Vader's the bad guy. And of course, even that's a bit simplistic and the Star Wars message shows us that, right? It's actually not that the universe consists of good guys and bad guys. Everybody has the potential for evil and you got to watch out because some really evil being is going to try to exacerbate that and, and amplify you, the evil that we all have lurking within us. We all got to be on guard. All right. So that's why I like using Star Wars as a metaphor for the, these types of things. Okay. Uh, for Harry Potter, you know, you could do a similar analysis if you're familiar with the books. There's the imperious curse, right? But again, not as many people have perhaps read that. And so that's why I use the, the force as my example for free will. But as far as, you know, what would it, what would it do to realize that there is this author who not just is responsible for all the creation, but you realize loves you and is, is good, is, you know, very good. That's, that's the issue. And so, and I, and I think JK Rowling was trying to do that. I mean, I think she was doing a lot in the Harry Potter books. Incidentally, if you've never read them, you should. And I know this is going to sound funny, but it's by book three or four, it really starts getting good. <laughs> so again, I know these are the long books and it sounds crazy. Like once you get to the thousandth page, then you realize it was worth it. But that that's what it was for me. I read the first one and I was like, yeah, I don't really see what the big deal is. And I actually thought it was kind of a ripoff of Star Wars. And it was only because my son was reading them and that, you know, I would read to him at bedtime and that's when I realized, whoa, we were like, he was like up in book five or something. And it was really compelling. And I had to go back and reread and catch up to where he was because, you know, I like, geez, I got to know what happened before. So in any event, give you a little nudge there. If you just assume, oh, these are silly kids books. They're amazing. And, and also of appeal to libertarians. The, the stuff J.K. Rowling does in it, it's awesome. You'll, you'll really enjoy it in terms of like an, analyzing government officials and how they refuse to recognize the, the real situation because it's just too horrible to contemplate and that kind of stuff. It's, it's awesome. So in any event, I think one of the things she's trying to do in there is there's, it's constantly the case that Harry Potter has anxiety and he worries over the silliest of things. You know, like, oh, is, uh, who am I going to take to this dance? And does she like me? And oh, does she like that guy over there? Oh, gee, and I didn't finish my project in time. And oh, I'm going to get a bad grade. And of course, you, the reader, know that he's on this trajectory to face off against Voldemort in book seven, right? And it's, it's hilarious how Harry Potter is having anxiety over these trivial little things 
not realizing that his destiny is in the hands of an author who loves him and the ultimate resolution of this conflict is going to be that good triumphs over evil. It doesn't mean there won't be suffering along the way. There is going to be suffering. Quote, good guys are going to die. And I think partly why does that have to happen is because that makes it real and it shows that if part of what the lesson is, the takeaway from all this is that good and love are stronger than evil and hatred, you got to let evil fight with both hands untied, right? If you said, oh, we don't want anything really bad to happen, well, then it might look like you were just cheating. And yeah, good can triumph if you don't, you know, ever let kids die or something. But no, you really let evil do what it's going to do and still it loses. Well, then that really does demonstrate that good is more powerful than evil. All right. So I think that's part of what's going on. But again, another thing that I'm more certain of that J.K. Rowling was trying to show is that look at how cute it is. And, you know, geez, you just sighed, oh, Harry, if you would just settle down, buddy, don't you realize how special you are? Don't you know what you're going to do? Don't you know you're in the hands of someone who has created you and loves you and knows this is the purpose for which you were made? And just relax and, and you know, bask in that. And you can't screw it up, Harry. Don't worry. It's, it's not what you've done. It's who you are. It's your relationship to your creator. That's what counts here because your creator is good and loves you and is knitting your life in with all everyone else's lives in this grand narrative that's beautiful, all right? And if Harry Potter could be made to see that, oh, he would calm down a lot, wouldn't he? So obviously that has repercussions and implications for us in our lives, doesn't it? Now, suppose in that environment, in that context, somehow Harry Potter does become aware that he's part of a narrative that was written by J.K. Rowling. And he doesn't know much about her. All he knows, though, is that she loves him. But by the way, just to amplify what I said a minute ago about it's not because of what he did. It's not that J.K. Rowling loves him because he's sufficiently good. Because when you read the Harry Potter books, you realize she loves everybody. Like she has pity for like Draco Malfoy and even her, his dad. And she even understands what happened with Voldemort and how he turned into that. And so it's, and you know, the, the, the main characters, they're not perfect. Harry has flaws. Ron certainly has flaws. Hermione is obnoxious, but JK Rowling loves all of them. And you, you just, it's flowing through her. You can just tell she adores those kids. And what does that mean? Does it mean nothing bad ever happens to him? No, not at all. I mean, Harry's parents were killed. I mean, he, and he was growing up in a pretty bad situation in the beginning. Does that show that J.K. Rowling is sadistic? Is she a child torturer? No, of course not. Nobody would think that. All right. Now, in that context, again, suppose somehow that uh, Dumbledore, I guess, you know, he's very wise. And, and he says, you know, Harry... We, we know through, I guess, revelation <laughs> in our reason that there's, there's this author, this intelligence, this being that is responsible for everything. And Harry's like, you mean more powerful than our magic? Oh, oh yeah. Like the, the creator of our magic, the person who invented the rules, like what spells even exist and so forth. There's this, this being that invented it all. 
and we don't know much about her her name except she's a she and her name is jk rowling and uh and she loves us we, we don't understand everything she's done but you know we can rest assured that she doesn't do things for no reason right there there is a reason for everything that happens it's part of her grand narrative and we just got to trust her that she's taken us somewhere beautiful with this and so you know harry's oh wow that's gorgeous and he's reassured or whatever he, you know, he might not, sometimes he might falter and not trust it and whatever in moments of weakness, but you know, when he can get in the right mindset, it's great. Relaxes him. His anxieties get soothed. And then some wise guy comes along. Maybe it's Draco. Who knows? Uh, maybe it's Snape who, who was, you know, can't stand Harry being so confident and uh, secure and says, what Dumbledore is filling your head with this notion of this JK Rowling out there who created everything. And, She's more powerful than we can possibly. She's even more powerful than Voldemort because there's just, she created him. And, you know, so for one thing, okay, well then she's evil, right? Because she has the power to stop Voldemort and she doesn't choose to. So she's obviously evil or she created Voldemort. So, you know, so if he's, if he's bad, then she must be bad too because she's the author of evil. And uh, also just this idea, right, Harry, because if I understand it correctly, Dumbledore's filling your head with this idea that this lady, let's call her J.K. Rowling, that's the name they give her, not only can she do anything, but she also knows the future perfectly. And Harry said, yep, yep, she's all-powerful and omniscient. And then, you know, Snape <laughs> smiles and, well, I've got you now, Potter. And he points out that there's a logical contradiction there, right? J.K. Rowling can't possibly know what's going to happen next year at Hogwarts and be able to influence it. She can't do, but she can do one or the other, but not both. Because if she knows what's going to happen next year at Hogwarts, then she's powerless to change it. QED. Okay, so my question now to you, the Bob Murphy Show listeners, is does that little demonstration really do much to constrain J.K. Rowling and her power and omniscience vis-a-vis -vis the Harry Potter universe? Is there any meaningful sense in which J.K. Rowling is not omniscient and omnipotent with respect to the Harry Potter universe. Does anyone want to say, I mean, really think that through. So yeah, it's certainly true that JK Rowling can't say, all right, in book seven, Snape is going to die. I know that. And simultaneously be able to make Snape alive. So that's true. But on the other hand, it's like she can do whatever she wants and she knows what's going to happen once that is what's going to happen. I mean, <laughs> do you, I don't know if, you, if, you get, if I'm getting my point across here, but J.K. Rowling is omniscient and omnipotent with respect to the Harry Potter universe. And it's, you, you could constrain it, but you can see it's, you're mostly just playing games with words. That in any meaningful sense, yeah, she knows exactly what's going to happen at all times in the universe from the beginning to the end at least insofar as she's decided to go down to that level of detail, right? So anything that is true of the Harry Potter universe, she knows if we're going by the you know fact that for it to be a fact of the Harry Potter universe, she has to have said it. And she had the power to make anything happen that she wanted, right? It's, it's not that she would be powerless. Oh, well, gee, once, you know, a spell works a certain way, she can't mess with it. Well, no, she's the one who made the spell work that way any, quote, laws or regularities, patterns and how things operate in the Harry Potter universe are only there because she put them there. Okay, so again, my point is, 
somebody in the Harry Potter universe who became aware of the existence of J.K. Rowling somehow, and presumably it would be because she truthfully wrote about herself and let the characters see that and become aware of her, some of her attributes. If they realized, or at least had some dim comprehension of this sense in which she had inconceivable power and knowledge of their universe, again, just like the idea of, oh, is it good versus evil? Is it, is it JK Rowling versus Voldemort? No, that's, that'd be goofy. It's, it's Harry versus Voldemort. And J.K. Rowling is so far above both of them. She orchestrated that to tell her story. All right, so it's when you're thinking of good, very well, I'll, I'll keep ref, confine myself right now to the, to the literary version. You obviously see where I'm going theologically with all this stuff. All right, so if somebody were to, you know, Snape or whoever, Draco, just to mess with Harry to try to deflate his confidence and to reintroduce anxiety and doubt into his life, pointed out, well, no, if right now we're in book six, J.K. Rowling can't know what's going to happen in book seven because if she did, then she would be powerless to change it. That would be a goofy little logic puzzle or whatever, wordplay, but that would not fundamentally change the fact that J.K. Rowling can do anything she wants in book seven and she knows exactly what's going to happen in book seven. Okay. Now, having said all that, let's turn to another great author. Ludwig von Mises. He says in the Scholar's Edition of Human Action, and I am beginning to read from page 69, section 11 titled, The Limitations on Praxeological Concepts. So I'm going to read this fairly extensive quote from Mises. The praxeological categories and concepts are devised for the comprehension of human action. They become self-contradictory and nonsensical if one tries to apply them in dealing with conditions different from those of human life. The naive anthropomorphism of primitive religions is unpalatable to the philosophic mind. However, the endeavors of philosophers to define neatly the attributes of an absolute being, free from all the limitations and frailties of human existence, by the use of praxeological concepts, are no less questionable. Scholastic philosophers and theologians, and likewise theists and deists of the age of reason, conceived an absolute and perfect being, unchangeable, omnipotent, and omniscient, and yet planning and acting, aiming at ends and employing means for the attainment of these ends. But action can only be imputed to a discontented being, and repeated action only to a being who lacks the power to remove his uneasiness once and for all at one stroke. An acting being is discontented and therefore not almighty. If he were contented, he would not act, and if he were almighty, he would have long since radically removed his discontent. For an all-powerful being, there is no pressure to choose between various states of uneasiness. He is not under the necessity of acquiescing in the lesser evil. Omnipotence would mean the power to achieve everything and to enjoy full satisfaction without being restrained by any limitations. But this is incompatible with the very concept of action. For an almighty being, the categories of ends and means do not exist. He is above all human comprehension, concepts, and understanding. For the almighty being, every, quote, means renders unlimited services. He can apply every means for the attainment of any ends. He can achieve every end without the employment of any means. It is beyond the faculties of the human mind to think the concept of almightiness, 
consistently to its ultimate logical consequences. The paradoxes are insoluble. Has the almighty being the power to achieve something which is immune to his later interference? If he has this power, then there are limits to his might, and he is no longer almighty. If he lacks this power, he is by virtue of this fact alone not almighty. And I'll stop there. So that spilled over onto page 70. Okay, so at the end there, Mises goes into the familiar apparent paradox. Can God make a rock so heavy he can't lift it? That sort of thing. Or just more generally, how could you be omniscient and omnipotent at the same time? Because again, if you're omniscient, you know the future with certainty, but then doesn't that pin you down so now you can't change it, right? To give an example, can God tell you who's going to win the next World Series? Of course he can. He knows everything. Oh, but once he tells you, now can God change who's going to win the World Series? Well, no, he can't because then that would mean he lied to you when he earlier said who was going to win. And then, oops, now that means he's powerless to change it, so he must not be omnipotent after all. All right, so I've already shown you, I hope, why that would be silly if somehow the Harry Potter characters figured out who J.K. Rowling was and had some inkling of just how tremendously powerful she was. It wasn't like she's this real powerful being who's got even stronger magic than Dumbledore and Voldemort put together. No, like, like that's not, you're thinking about the wrong way if you're trying to compare her. She's so qualitatively superior to any creation in their universe. It, it doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense to compare. And yet, in Again, so is there a sense in which J.K. Rowling can't both control what's going to happen in book seven and know what's going to happen? Is there, Are those two attributes of her nature in conflict with each other? In one sense, okay, but then there's a, certainly a very reasonable and obvious common sense way in which J.K. Rowling can do whatever she wants in book seven and she knows exactly what's coming. It's like she's going to be surprised by what happens in book seven. All right regarding like the, the World Series application, I mean, one way to, to answer, like let's say you were talking to God and you said, hey, do you know who's going to win the World Series? And he could say, yeah. And then you say, who? And what does he say? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I mean, that, that all works too. And then you say, oh, but you can't change it now, can you? And he could say, well, when I told you, yeah, I know, I also knew what I was going to do. And I've taken all that into account. So, you know, you get what I'm saying? That that's, it's actually not a contradiction. It's only a contradiction, for example, if you make God tell you who the winner's going to be. And then maybe it's a contradiction, but God's not under any obligation to tell you, you know, who the winner's going to be. So there's things like that. Now you could say, okay, well, he told us what's going to happen in Revelation. So does that mean that can't happen? All right, fair enough. So let's circle back and hit the more interesting question, which is the centerpiece riddle that I want to tackle in this episode. If once you understand the praxeological notion of action and what drives it, and some you know, Mises earlier had established, in order for there to be action, you got to have a few prerequisites. There's got to be a, a subjective being with desires. The being has to have some amount of uneasiness, or dissatisfaction. The being has to have reason and be able to imagine a way of improving upon that dissatisfaction to make things better and then to see a means of, of doing so and then to try to seize that opportunity, right? I'm, I'm paraphrasing that those aren't the exact words that Mises would use, but that's the basic idea of it. You need all those elements in order for there to be action. And so then when we think about the notion, the, the classical theological notion of the God of the Bible, 
who's omniscient and omnipotent, it seems like that goes out the window. Well, you couldn't have an acting God, put it that way. So you could have a being perhaps that was omniscient, omnipotent, but boom, then that being wouldn't act anymore. And so the, I, I mean, to me, this is really easy to solve. And the answer is time as we experience it is not time as God experiences it. So just picture a diagram. Imagine, you know, God's the top of a piece of paper and then he, you know, there's the whole timeline in front of him, right? So he's seeing a chart of human history with time on the x-axis, if you want, and he's looking at it. So God in one fell swoop just creates everything. Like if you think of it as like a comic strip, this is going from left to right, and that's the way time passes from our perception. But it's not that God is riding along with us and time is elapsing from his perspective too, and he's getting older and, and changing. He's unchanging. In one fell swoop, he drew every panel in the cartoon strip even though you read the panel from left to right, or you, yeah, you read the, the strip from left to right, moving from one panel to the next, God created all the panels simultaneously. And in fact, he would need to know where it was going. Otherwise, the story wouldn't make sense, right? When he, it was not that he could draw the first panel and not know where it was going. I mean, maybe the writers from uh, the series 24 <laughs> sometimes seemed like that's what they were doing. But for a good story, obviously, you know where it's going to end up. Just like J.K. Rowling, it, her actual creative process... I'm guessing, you know, she first knew the basic outline. Like, okay, there's going to be this kid that's an orphan. And then, you know, he's ultimately going to grow up and face Voldemort, or she wouldn't maybe know Voldemort's name, face the bad guy at the end of the story. And then, you know, once she's got the big picture, starts filling in the details. Okay, so if that's the way it is, right? That you, so in other words, you're imagining it's not merely that God is sitting there and clock time's run, running and first there's nothing and clock time's running for whatever, 60 trillion years. And then all of a sudden on a Monday, God decides to create light and then, you know, and then so forth. That, that's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is before there was any physical thing, like there was no space time. And notice too, that's actually consistent with the modern, you know, modern physical understanding of the world as far as physicists and cosmologists are concerned. Like there's a sense in which space and time came into existence at once, you know, they would call it the big bang. Okay. So it, again, it's, it's not the, the way to think about it is not that God's just kind of up there, but he's going through time like we are. And it's just, he's got special physical properties. No, God is outside space time. And so from God's point of view, he created the universe and did everything he was going to do in one fell swoop. So yes, Mises, I would say that's, you're, you're right a perfect omniscient being would satisfy any uneasiness in one action. And that's what God did. That he did what needed to be done. You know, that he, he decided, he created and did everything, boom, once in one act of creation. And that was perfectly good. And that's, and of course you get into the issues of, well, gee, how come evil exists and whatever? And you say, well, it's because of free will. And so there's lots of complications and it's hard to understand all that. But what God did was perfectly good in the sense that it's not that, oh, geez, if only he had done something else, that would have been even better. No, that's not, that's not the case. God did the perfect thing that he should have done. But part of what he did was create a story that unfolds over time. So for the creatures in the story moving along, 
to them, time's elapsing and babies get born and grow old and die. We have history. And then from our point of view, we know vaguely what happened in the past, but we don't know what's coming in the future. But God is like outside the timeline looking at that because from his perspective, it was all boom, one act of creation. It's all sitting there at once. It's not that God has to go along with us and wait to see, oh, look how things are unfolding. That's, that's not really the right way to think about it. So given that, and, and there's instances where it looks like there's special miraculous intervention. Now here, I subscribe to the Thomist view. I think it's not just from Thomas Aquinas, but I think you know one of his arguments for the existence of God buttresses this, that it's not like, oh, there's nature and it's operating according to its rules. And then God comes along once in a while and violates the rules or something. To me, no, it's like, this is all in God's mind. Like we're just thoughts God is having or, you know, one amazing thought or something that's very complex. So it's not that occasionally you can see the hand of God at work. I think like his spirit upholds everything. Like the, the operation of the universe, reality itself is dependent upon his will. Okay. But clearly there are cases and the Bible supports this too, where really unusual things happen that we can say, oh, that's a miracle. Okay. Now, because we're traveling along through space-time, to us, it looks like God intervenes at various points in history. But that doesn't mean God acted on a thousand different occasions and the clock time elapsed and you wonder, gee, why didn't he just take care of it all before? It's that from our perspective, that's what it looks like. Going back to Harry Potter, for example, there are cases where there are really lucky things that happen that help Harry get out of a jam. And, you know, we can say, why is that? And well, ultimately the reason is because JK Rowling wants Harry to win. She wants good to triumph over evil. And so Harry can't die, for example. So, you know, you could say there's a sense. And if, and if Harry had become aware of the existence of JK Rowling, then whenever one of those really quote lucky things happened, he might say that that was JK Rowling looking out for me right there. So from Harry's perspective, it would look like J.K. Rowling was walking with him through his life. And then again, Snape or some wise guy could come along and say, well, gee, Harry, if J.K. Rowling is so powerful, why didn't she do everything in book one, right? Why, why, is, why isn't, is, is her creation imperfect? Did she screw up in book one? And that's why it's taking seven books to finally get things right. That your story doesn't make any sense. It's internally contradictory. This being J.K. Rowling, if she were really as powerful and as wise as you say, she just would have had one intervention back in book one, and that would have been it. So do you see why that would be kind of a goofy critique at that point? And that's certainly, I mean, we know that that's wrong. We know that there is this creator, and she does love the characters in the book, and she is good in, in so far as you know her work in the book is concerned and what she's trying to do. She's not writing it to advance evil. She's trying to show the triumph of love. And I don't want to give a big spoiler, but those of you who read know what I'm talking about really trying to show the triumph of love over evil and hatred with her story. And so, you know, to say, well, why did it take her seven? But I mean, that's, that's kind of a goofy thing. It was in part of the answer is because our minds are so weak, right? That to get everything across to a human reader, she couldn't have packed it all into one sentence, right? That, that would be impossible. We wouldn't be able to process everything she was trying to get across. So likewise, to say, well, gee, how come human history takes so long? Why didn't God just do it all at once? I mean, it's kind of hard to answer, but clearly 
because we wouldn't have been able to comprehend it. If, if to the extent that we're learning from history and you know, oh wow, and the more you study and you appreciate things, and gee, wow, the world's really complex. And look at all these lessons we're learning. If you're Christian, you're, you the more you study things and the older you get and the wiser you get and oh wow it just makes you appreciate and love god even more and seeing his benevolence and the wisdom of his plan and his creation okay well the reason he just zapped it in your head in the beginning is because you're too limited you wouldn't have been able to absorb it that fast but that doesn't mean it's because he was limited it's because he's telling a story and the person hearing the story has to take it in so that's my uh resolution of mises conundrum and I, again, with, with a lot of this stuff, let me just say, I forgot to mention this at the beginning in case you haven't heard me say it before. So I was raised Catholic. I was what I called a devout atheist for, I think, all of my undergrad college career. And then at some point in grad school, I had an epiphany and realized there was a God. And then through fits and starts, came back to Christianity and now I call myself a Protestant, born-again Christian. So because of that time I spent as an atheist, I fully understand this perspective. There was a time when I would have read Mises' remarks there, and I'm pretty sure I would have thought they were great. But you know, now, from this other perspective, it was like, they're obviously silly. That that's, that's not a good critique at all. My episode here hasn't proven to you that there is a God, of course. I'm just saying this particular objection that we can just point out, oh, wait a minute, God wouldn't act in the Misesian sense if he had the attributes that medieval theologians thought he did is, is a silly objection. Again, just imagine if somehow the characters in Harry Potter, some of them started believing in J.K. Rowling, you certainly wouldn't diminish her capacity by just going through some of these syllogisms or alleged syllogisms. Well, that's what I wanted to get across in this episode. Hope everybody has a Merry Christmas. And I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>